You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. So my guest today on the podcast is Brad Stahlberg. He's been on before. Uh, he researches, writes, and coaches on health, well-being, and sustainable excellence. He is the best-selling author of The Practice of Groundedness and the co-author of Peak Performance. And we had him and Steve Magnus, his co-author on the, on the pod before. Um, he's on the faculty of the University of Michigan's Graduate School of Public Health, and his new book is called Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. This is a great one. Enjoy the pod. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Brad Stahlberg, welcome to the show. Hey, Kelly, it's good to be back. Thanks for having me. So a word that we have heard a lot in the last few years is unprecedented. Um, in particular, as this nation and the world face the COVID crisis, Public and private discourse often centered itself on the idea that this was a once-in-a-lifetime event. But you remind us in your book, and I'm quoting you here, the coronavirus pandemic represents what I call a disorder event, something that fundamentally shifts our experience of ourselves and the world we inhabit, something for better and some, some things for better and sometimes for worse. The pandemic may be the most recent large-scale disorder event, but it's certainly not the first, nor will it be the last. I think what you're saying in this quote and what you say in the book is... Uh, in, in a sense, we need to normalize disorder events, that that is the way the world works. That's right. We don't have to like them. No. Uh, and often often we don't. Um, but we need to expect that they are going to occur. And when they do occur, we need to try to minimize our denial or resistance or freaking out so that we can see clearly what's happening and give ourselves a chance to participate in shaping, hopefully, what is a thoughtful and discerning response. So this has never not been true, as far as I can understand. So why is it that no one teaches this? Why is it that through education, through work, that, that it is very rare for people to sort of say, oh, by the way, you're going to get your ass kicked? I wish I had an answer. Uh, part of why I set out to write this book was uh, to try to fill some of that infinite size void. Yeah. Um, I think one reason that this isn't taught is because it can be an uncomfortable thing to talk about because just we don't like change in disorder. Yeah. Uh, so we tend not to gravitate towards talking about things that we don't love. Mm -hmm. Um 
even if it is inevitable that we will all face change and disorder throughout our lives. And not only on a grand scale, like pandemics or political dysfunction or war, um, but also on a more personal scale, um, aging, mm. grief, loss, uh, good change as well. Marriage, kids, graduating from school, starting a new job, uh, injury, illness, like th- there's just no getting through even the most average human existence without experiencing a lot of change and disorder. And you put a number to this that I think roughly 36 in, in the person's lifetime. That's right. That's not my number. That's um, Bruce Feiler did some research. But yes, 36 is the average number of uh, changes that Feiler and his colleagues found the average adults experiences. And these are not small changes. These are what he calls life quakes or what I call uh, disorder events. Yeah. Uh, these are things that like really shift your understanding of the world and how you operate in it. So um, I just gave some examples. Some other examples could be uh, retirement, uh, yeah. could be starting a job, could be a promotion or a new role, uh, all the family changes, marriage, divorce, having kids, kids leaving the house, meeting a new best friend, distancing from a friend. Uh, when you lay them out, suddenly that 36 number does seem pretty believable because we're always going through some sort of transition or change. It's funny. We have a hard time with these numbers, right? So I, I was talking to Bob Sutton recently, uh, who was talking about the idea that to get to a really good creative idea, you probably need around 2,000 ideas. And people freak out at that at that amount. That's less of a freak out for, for me because at Second City, the whole yes and concept is the reality that you need an abundant amount of ideas to get to anything that is going to be funny enough to end up in the, in the Second City show. So you are just tossing out idea after idea after idea, having it meld with other people's ideas to, to get to that. But I think it is just kind of whatever we're, we've been anchored on, we can't see past like, like, I think someone sort of thinking that they're going to have to go through this like 38 times would be like, well, there's no way I can survive through that. And then I think one of the benefits I think of getting older and certainly going through a lot of these hardships myself is that it's like, well, no, I went, I went through it. I survived. I'm here again. And it's probably going to happen again. And there is a freedom, I think, that exists in that place where you've sort of dropped this, this um, clinging to permanence. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I want to be clear that it's not always negative change. Uh, like to, to the body, though, change is just change. Um, so it, it, even the more positive changes can really disrupt us or cause excitement or anxiety that sometimes is um, not, not necessarily working in our favor. Uh, and then to your second point, that's right. The, the conceptual model that I use for this is a cycle of order, disorder, reorder. And we're always somewhere in that cycle. And the more that we go through that cycle, ideally, the more compassionate we become because it's hard to be a human. And also the more accepting of that cycle we become. Because to your point, the more you go through it, the more you realize that this is just all part of the bargain of being here on this planet. And like it or not, we are going to experience all sorts of change and transition. And, and, and as we go through that cycle, we develop resilience, ruggedness, flexibility to be able to do it again. Um, I think that particularly for hard negative changes, um, there is such a grace and a wisdom that comes with just getting through. 
Yeah. And then the next time you face a hard negative change, there's just one to 2% of your awareness. That's all it takes that can remind yourself, like, all I have to do is get to the other side of this. Right. Uh, and then I'll be okay or I'll be okay enough. Yeah. One of the things I enjoyed about this book too, was that it is, you're not just leaning on sort of the contemporary science, whether it's neuroscience or behavioral science or behavioral economics or whatever. You also look at spiritual tra- traditions um, and, and, and think, I mean, I just think of when, when you were talking, I'm like, there's no joy without suffering. There's no suffering without joy, which is a, a Buddhist uh, uh, concept. And one of the things I really enjoyed was the metaphor you, you talk about in the book, which is there's a difference between a road and a path. Mm. And I'd love you to talk a bit about that and why that's important to this, this idea. Yeah, that's like the framing of the, the, the book is this notion of a, a road and a path. So a road is linear. Uh, its goal is to get you from here to there as fast as possible. When you are on a road, anytime you get off the road is seen as a bad thing. Um, even if you're making a road trip, right? Like, oh, you, you want to rush your stop so you can get back on the road, get where you're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, you often have a map or in today's day and age, a GPS that's telling you the fastest way to get where you're going. And and often you're not really even looking at what's happening. You're just kind of dialed in on the map and on the the line in front of you or the car in front of you. Uh, And roads are very efficient. Um, They plow through the landscape and they just take you from here to there. A path, on the other hand, is meandering. A path is not separate from its landscape, but it works in concert with its landscape. Uh, There's no getting thrown off a path. You just bushwhack your way towards where you're going. And when you're on a path, you can't help but pay attention to your surroundings. Um, You cannot just zone out when you're on a path. And what happens is you often see this beautiful life on the side of the path. And you often see other routes that open up that you never even thought could have. And I think that the metaphor, listeners probably can guess where I'm going, is that if we live our life like a road, we optimize and we get really efficient, but we just miss out on so much if we just try to get from here to there. And the risk is that we just pummel into the end of our lives and not even know how we got there. Our head was just down on the road. Start school, finish school, get the promotion, get married, move to the suburbs, like just one target to the next. Whereas if we can conceptualize our life more like a path, or maybe we have a general direction of where we want to go, but we're open to what emerges as we walk the path. Uh, I argue that we find a lot more meaning and texture and also ease in our life. Because uh, again, when you're on a road and there's a, a disorder event or a change, of course you're going to freak out. It's like getting into a car accident or thrown off the road. It is not yeah. a good thing. Uh, but if you're on the path and you fall, again, you don't have to like it, but you kind of accept that part of walking a path is you're going to trip up from time to time, you're going to make a wrong turn. Um, that's okay. And I think that, um, yeah, we just, we, we often think about roads and not about paths. And I think, um, sometimes a road makes sense, but often a path is a better conceptual model for getting where we want to go. And I don't, I I mean, for myself, I don't see myself being able to experience something like transformation, flourishing awe when I'm on a road, but all those things, exist within a path because I, I, cause I'm immediately, I'm tied to landscape, which, which in, in vision wise, right. I like, and you already brought up, like you see things on the side, you don't just see things on the side. You're going to see behind you and above you and below you. And really on a road, if you take your eye too far off of what right in front of you, you're, you're going to get in an accident. 
That's right. And, and, and change is just so threatening when you're on a road, right? Like, cause you're right. not expecting any change. You're just expecting to plow ahead, get where you're going. Um, so yes, a path puts you in conversation with your environment. Mm-hmm. And if we use the metaphor of life, I think that the best way to navigate life is to be in conversation with it, to have your goals and have your values, but also to accept the terms that life puts upon you. Um, there's a quote in the book from Bruce Springsteen that essentially like the apex or the peak of mature adulthood is being able to meet the world on its terms without losing hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you got to meet the world. You don't just plow to where you're going. Uh, so I think if we can open, open up and, and, and treat our endeavors and our goals and our pursuits more like paths than roads, uh, we find more texture, we find more meaning, and we find a lot more ease. Uh, and we often get where we're going just the same. Um, I'm forgetting this from the book, but you, I, 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 you had sort of an incident in, in, I believe it was 2017, this, this sort of big change for yourself. And what I don't remember from the book was whether this was like, were you already conceiving of the book or did the book somehow arise out of this hardship that you have, which took something like eight months out of your life? That's right. Oh no, I wasn't conceiving of the book at all back then. Um, the, the, the actual conception of this book was, I wrote it pretty quickly, was in 2021. Um, so yeah, well, (laughs) let me tell you what happened preceding that in my personal life. And then I'll tell you what happened. Uh, well, we can, we can all live through what happened. We don't want to live through that, but, um, in my personal life, I just moved across the country uh, from a big urban city out west to a smaller mountain town in North Carolina. Uh, I'd become a father for the first time. Um, I decided to really go full-time as a writer and um, resigned from my corporate responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife was planning to leave her job as a part of our move. Um, my wife became pregnant with our second child, which we eventually had and she's healthy. Thank goodness. Uh, there was a really painful estrangement in my family that shook up my family of origin. Um, in my most recent book, the practice of groundedness took off and sold really well. So a mix of the good, the bad, the positive, the negative, but a lot of change. Yeah. And I would share this with contemporaries and colleagues and they would say, Oh yeah, of course. Like, I feel like I'm going through just like a torrent of change. So it was on my mind. And then COVID happened, which was the disorder event that impacted all of us uh, really throughout the world, certainly in America and Europe. And I distinctly remember the day that I had the kernel of the idea for what became this book. I was in our kitchen in Asheville and I was on my wife's iPad because I don't have my own. And I was skimming the news and I looked at the Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The Economist, and The New York Times. And on that day, they all were running stories that essentially had the headline, what do we have to do to get back to normal? When are things going to get back to normal? What's the path or what's the road to get back to normal? And there was something about that that just viscerally rubbed me the wrong way. And I didn't know what it was at the time, but I wrote down, why do we try to get back to normal? And then like the creative mind does, as you know, I took a walk, I took a shower, I lived my life. And a week later, I said, you know, I think this just has to do with all change. Like whenever there's a big change, we try to get back to normal. But what ends up happening is we try really hard, we suffer, and then eventually we realize we're never going to get back to where we started. Uh, And it started this intellectual exploration into like how we think about change, the roots of why we even try to get back to normal to begin with. And then ultimately landed at this new model 
that conceives of change as order, disorder, reorder. So yes, we crave stability and we want to get to stability, but that stability is never back to where we started. It's always somewhere new. I was reading your book uh, as I was flying from, I mean, I have been on the road for like five weeks straight. I, they, I've got booked on all these keynotes and I do that like regularly, but not like this. Like, like I have just been back to back to back and, and, and then interviewing people throughout and sort of like the, your ideas, other people's ideas, entering the, the conversations I've been having with these audiences. And one of the things that I talk a lot about, and it's based on my wife's work as a, uh, comedy academic, um, is, is in, in storytelling and, and comedians in general are, uh, you, you relate to a lot of comedians through their struggle. So mm-hmm. when, when you think about, she calls it uh, perspective giving that, that, uh, stand-up comedians in the first five minutes of their first, you know, special are going to basically John Mulaney's a drunk and Amy Schumer's a slut and Pat Oswalt's a schlub and like go, go on and on, but they're anchoring you in this sort of conceived negative, uh, struggle. And, and then what you do is you follow them as they sort of seemingly, you know, get over that struggle. And then you realize they're in front, in front of a big audience ma- making them laugh. And I know when I do my talks, I often talk about my own crises and one in particular, when I, after I wrote my book, Yes, and and then I I ended up quitting my job at Second City and, and luckily got got to stay and do other stuff. But I I I blew myself up. I called a midlife crisis. I don't, I don't know what it was, but but I look back at that time now, and you talk about this in the book, and I remember that time like it was treading through molasses, and I didn't know what was going to happen next, and it was like, did I make this mistake? Now I look back on it like that was a blip of a of a of a time that. Now I look and I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have everything I have now. And I'm very content with a lot of my lot in life and what I've been able to do that would not have happened had I sort of stayed in my previous role where everything was really going fine. Mm. Thank you for sharing. Uh, I have so much in there that we can we can unpack. Go, go wherever. So first, this notion of shared vulnerability in putting out the junk in perspective giving. Um, This has roots so deep in mythology. Uh, This is Joseph Campbell's hero's journey Mm -hmm. where we start out and everything is stable. And then we go through some kind of trial or tribulation and we leave home. We leave who we think we were and we go meet the world and we fight battles and we get beat down and we get back up. And then we come back home the same, but different. And this is Simba in the Lion King. It's Elsa in Frozen, Mirabelle in Encanto. Uh, and I think Frodo, it's like, it's every, it's every story. And I think in a way it's Amy Schumer and John Mulvaney. and, And it's the same thing because Essentially, what they're doing is they're saying, like, I had this life, I completely messed up, or this is what's wrong. And it was terrible crisis, I got through it. And now I'm here and I'm the same person that was an alcoholic, or that was too promiscuous. Yeah, but I'm also here now. So I'm the same but different. And I think that is like the identity cycle of order, disorder, reorder. Hmm. Um, So one, I just think that there is like such a strong human element to that, that it tracks all of our myths and that we are so attached to that because I think it is just true and things that are true are really relatable. 
The second point about time slowing down and feeling like molasses, um, you can't get to reorder without disorder. And for negative events, disorder stinks. There's no yeah. other way to put it. Uh, one of, I think, the most clever studies I've ever reported on is done by the Baylor University neuroscientist David Eagleman. And he essentially, well, first off, Eagleman studies perception of time. So he's an academic and his wonderful brain is just focused on this issue of like, how do we perceive time? So I guess he looks at some other things too. So for this experiment, he took participants to an amusement park and had them go on this crazy ride called the SCAD, which is short for a suspended catch air device. And it's essentially, it's essentially just a mattress that drops 150 feet. Eagleman calls it uh, bungee jumping without the bungee. <sighs> yeah, this, this amusement park's in Texas. This kind of ride is only allowed in Texas. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what he did was he had participants go on the SCAD and estimate how long the fall took. And then he had them regroup and from the ground watch other people go on the SCAD and estimate how long the falls of the other people took. And what he found is that when people were on the ground, they estimated accurately how long the ride took. But when they were just getting off the ride after their experience on it, they said it took about 40% longer than it actually did. Wow. And that led him to have this theory that when we are in the midst of challenge or when we feel under threat, our perception of time slows down. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a beautiful metaphor. Talk about a gift as a writer, because when the ground is pulled out from underneath you, when it feels like you're in free fall, time slows. Uh, the mechanism behind this for the science nerds is very interesting, um, is essentially that when we are under threat, it benefits us to see every little thing, right? Because in our evolution, when we're under threat, like we don't want to miss the snake at our feet, or we don't want to miss the mountain lion off in the bushes stalking us. So we want to view things frame by frame with as much detail as possible. Whereas when things are going great, life is just like one harmoniously flowing event. So when we find ourselves in struggle, it is our brain's hardwiring to start to view things frame by frame. And when we view things frame by frame, they slow down. This is why depression, a hallmark of depression is time just stops. A hallmark of grief is time just stops. But this is true for lesser, more trivial changes too. Just in a hard day, things slow down. And the opposite is true for really positive experiences, right? Flow, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's concept is characterized by time kind of speeding up and just losing a sense of time altogether. So what to make of all this? When you are in the thick of disorder, when you're in the thick of struggle, if it feels like it is taking forever, just remind yourself that it's not true. It is your brain playing a perceptive trick on you. And if you can just get to the other side, when you look back on what happened, just like those people that rode the SCAD, it won't seem like it took as long. It will seem just like a blip. The two-year divorce or the six-month depression that when you were in the thick of it felt like forever, just get five, 10 years down the road, maybe not even, maybe just get a year down the road. And you look back on it and you're really glad that you hung in there and you got through because when you look back on it, it just doesn't seem that all-consuming. There is one exception to this that I should mention, which is grief. Uh, Grief is nonlinear. 
uh, grief behaves very bizarrely. People have tried to categorize it. It, it is, it is uncategorizable. It's part of what makes it so hard. However, even in grief, like there's a reason that people say time heals all wounds. I would argue that with grief, it's never really healed. No. But that emptiness, more joy can get in. Yeah. And yeah. takes I, I, time, though. Yeah, I was thinking about this, oh, a number of things. But I know, like, when, when my, our daughter got diagnosed with cancer when she was 16, you know, Anne and I have spent our life doing this work. And we were well-equipped, right? So we knew how to sort of improvise inside this scenario and stay fiercely in the moment. And we played the scene we're in, not the scene we want to be in. And then when she died, and we're, you know, the, the, I did not know how to improvise through grief. And I sort of figured out you couldn't. And, and, and then, then it was everything else. It was therapy. It was working out, but more so, more than anything for, for us. And I, th- I think it's true. It was the relationships that we had that we leaned on. We leaned on our, our, our people and recognizing that like, there's no way to get through this by yourself. And so that became crucial. And we're very lucky to work in a literally work in a community of people. I always say to people like, you know, I do work in a comedy theater. There's a surprising amount of crying that happens in this comedy theater. Um, but, but I think that's because people are emotionally available. And they're also, and this brings my other point that I was thinking of before you, where you went, which is I, we, a guy came to us with the wanting to do a, he wanted to hire us to do a PSA around social anxiety, using comedy around social anxiety. I sent out an email to the second city community and saying, Hey, just this is all the actors. Does anyone have experience with social anxiety that they maybe want to like help out on this? Seventy five percent of the talent on stage suffers from some level of social anxiety, which on its face seems wild. If you have social anxiety, why would you get on stage in front of a bunch of people without a script? But then you take that next beat, right? And you realize, oh, no, that's the one place they feel safe because they know the rules of improvise of improvisers are the person across from me. Their only job is to save me. My job is to save them. That is what that, that is what we do. I'm putting my all my focus on this. And so, in many ways, it's a relief when they're up there because they're fulfilling <laughs> the thing that they can't do when they're walking around in real life. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, and my heart just breaks that you and your wife had to go through that kind of loss. The worst. Can't imagine. I can't even begin to. Um, to your second point about the social anxiety and the person up on the stage, um, I think there's a beautiful metaphor in that too. That sometimes just kind of surrendering ourselves to the next thing. I mean, there's a reason in AA they say just do the next right thing. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's kind of like improv. It's like just like hang in there and like get yeah. get, get the next right line or, or not. Okay. It doesn't even have to be right. Get the next nope, line. Yeah. Like make it right. Um, that that is really kind of probably like medicine for someone with social anxiety, because all the craziness and all the noise and all those heightened alarm signals. If you're just focused on the person across from you or the community and keeping the thing moving down the road, if life becomes that small, um, it's hard to feel anxiety in those moments. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's there's a real beautiful metaphor for one going through really challenging changes. Um, 
to attempt to like just do the next right thing. And if you can't do it by yourself, do it in a community. And um, I mean, man, you don't need me to tell you this. You don't need anyone to tell you this. The research is so unequivocal that even though people think of resilience as an individual characteristic, the hallmark of resilience is help seeking and being open to receiving help and being enmeshed in a community. Yep. And, and the, and I also think of sport with regard to this in particular things like basketball or soccer, where the vision becomes so important, but also space and, and people, right. And rhythm and, and the idea, and you know, I'm a Chicago guy, right. So I watch the bulls win all those championships. Michael Jordan was just as great before, but it wasn't until he, he had to sort of participate in this triangle, which is so Taoist. Like, it's just so beautiful. Because then that started happening. You were just like, I'd never seen anything like this. And in the way the ball moved, and the way every, like everyone sort of acted together. And like Steve Kerr hits the winning shot in a number of those games, not Jordan. And he's not the better player. He's not the like, it, it, but it, it didn't matter because that's what it wasn't about. And I think there's something very lovely and, and improvisational about that as well and flow based that, that, that great, great teams seem somehow to be able to sort of muster together. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. Um, I, I think back to the part of the book about independence versus interdependence. Yeah. In how an independent lens is a very Western lens. Anthropologists find that um, people who, who were raised in the West tend to adopt this, this orientation and it essentially sees itself as separate from its surroundings Um strong agency in control, able to bend and shape things to its will and its surroundings work in service of it. Whereas an interdependent orientation, which is more common in the East sees oneself in conversation with their environment in, in a relational way. Uh, in many ways their actions are shaped by their environment, not the other way around. Mm. And, What's fascinating is that neither lens is better or worse. Like they are both have their positives and they both have their negatives. Um, I think the interesting thing is that they both exist and there's nothing genetic about them. They're learned. So we can practice being in both of those modes. And I think sometimes maybe in the case of like Michael Jordan, when you're just a little too much in the independent mode, getting some interdependence, the triangle like by definition, interdependence, you're depending on these other two players and the flow of the ball around the court. It can actually make you feel better and and do better. And, you know, for us Westerners, of course, we probably want to be more interdependent, but for people in the East, the opposite is often true. They often benefit from being more independent, from not being a quote unquote pushover, from standing up for themselves, from not just saying, oh, it's God's will, I'll go with the flow. Yeah. Uh, because sometimes you ought not go with the flow. You ought to stand up for what you believe in. So again, neither is right or wrong. I think that what I ask readers to do and what I try to do myself is to ask myself in this situation, what lens is kind of dominating and is right. it serving and is it serving me or not? And if not, how would I approach this from the other lens? I'm curious too, with regard, you, you talk in the book around cognitive therapies uh, and behavioral therapies. And I know, so when I went, to, when I, uh, my second, third therapist that I landed with was just incredible. And we, I, I did EMDR with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just life changing with mm-hmm. regard to stuff that I was going through 
and and I was reading at the same time Andy Murphy Paul's The Extended Mind. Great uh, book. Great book. And and so this this and really for for me it was sort of like, oh, is my my body is telling my brain I'm having this issue, and and then that combined sort of with the the therapies themselves, I was able to like really get over the hump on on, on some stuff, but but also made me very aware, especially driving. Uh, so, so, and very keenly aware of like potential road rage and, and other things and ways of making my body um, speak to my mind. And often I do that through smiling. Mm-hmm. So I would like, if I'm getting something like getting up, getting up, I guess I will smile. And then I realize like, I, it is very hard to be angry or fear-based when you are smiling. <laughs> yeah. So it's my little thing that I use on the highway to sort of contend with, with, with what's going on and, and all that. And I think what you, what you get at in, in the book is this idea of like, you, you talk about acting your way into a new state of mind, which also feels very theatrical. Mm-hmm. I, based on my own experience in my research and reporting, and this is very individual, I have a theory and I put forth in the book and I, I take a pretty big swing here that behavioral therapy for many people in many conditions is more helpful than cognitive therapy. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to read the comments to the show because some people that have benefited tremendously from cognitive therapy will tell me I'm wrong and, and, and there are multiple roads to Rome. However, the ability to think certain thoughts or to try to control your thoughts, it cannot be done. You cannot control your thoughts. There's this famous experiment where a psychologist tells people to close their eyes and try not to think of a pink bear for 30 seconds. And everyone thinks of a pink bear. And the harder you try not to think of a pink bear, the more you think of it. Um, You also cannot will yourself to feel better. No amount of positive affirmations or mantras or saying, well, it could be worse. I could be uh, a refugee in Syria right now. So I should really be grateful for how I feel. If you're truly in the shitter, like that's not going to help you feel better. You can act your way to feeling better and to thinking more useful thoughts. Um, without getting way too into the weeds, I think what is happening here is that the neurochemistry that underlies our moods, it's very complex, um, but in order to change your neurochemistry, you have to act. Like it's very hard to change your neurochemistry just by like trying to think or like will yourself to a new feeling. But if you act, if you exercise, if you just get started with the thing in front of you, uh, a mi- mindfulness practice, like the act, like the doing of non-doing, all of these things are actions. Uh, they, they can get you out of a rut in a way that just thinking can't. Um, and I think EMDR is like a really fascinating example of that because it's this therapy that on its face seems so wacky. Uh, But the evidence behind it is quite strong Mm -hmm. and it is because it is not just working on your thoughts, but it is engaging your body, whether it's through rapid eye movements or through being in touch with certain sounds um, to like break that stasis. Uh, So another way to put it maybe is if you have stasis in the brain, you can't think your way out of stasis, but you can act your way out of stasis. Yeah. And, and Annie in Extended Mind talks about the fact, which is just true for in the theater world, 
which is a lot of people don't really memorize their lines until they're blocking mm-hmm. because they're combining that movement. The movement is taking them to the place where they can sort of, because I'm, I'm not an actor and my son is, and my son like will memorize 25, 30 pages in a day and then, and then, and then do it. And, and, and I, I literally, he does it walking around. Mm. or swimming or whatever like he was on vacation he, he was had to memorize this hamlet monologue and he did it in the pool as he was it was just like it's so funny i'm watching that you know sort of in action yeah um, and 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 that is um and we were just having this i just we have this we have a nerdy call every week actually i think people would like love to be a fly on the wall for this it's called our creative depth meeting so it's the creative leaders of second city pick deep topics to talk talk in depth about and the one today was around, um, there are many different schools of improvisation. We're going to be opening a school uh, in theater in New York for the first time, a permanent one. Nice. And what's very popular in New York uh, is a thing that the, a group called the Upright Citizens Brigade do called Game of the Scene. And it's essentially improvising to, you find a game, you heighten it, you just you keep heightening, heightening, heightening at, at that one game. And the difference between that and what we do, which is called Spolin improvisation, is that we seek to transform. We, we seek to find some level of truth. Um, and, and that is much harder and requires a lot of sort of failure. And as our friend Jen is, is rehearsing in New York with her cast in front of these audiences, she is requiring them to do, to do that work, which, which means they're, they are sacrificing laughter, quick laughs, mm-hmm. and the, that dopamine hit in service of this thing that's hopefully hopefully going to come later and it will we know it will which is a much bigger payoff because it, it gets to like the reason we think we're doing this which is to be a reflection of the world that's going on through people just through a comic lens and the conversation was like look if you don't do the hard work that involves failing in front of audiences you will never get there and you can do the other work and completely succeed in front of audiences, but on a, what we would consider to be a shallow level. Yeah. And I, and, and to me, that is like, you got to go through disorder to get to reorder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, like you got to, like the disorder there is like getting way out of your comfort zone and failing. And there's no um, choice. There's literally no choice if you want to get back. To yeah. Order. Yeah. And, 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 and to, well, and to reorder to the next level. Reorder. Um, I mean, it's no different than an athlete. Like when you do a workout, you're kind of embarrassing your body. Like you're breaking down your body so that it reorders stronger. Yeah. And I think in, in emotional and cognitive and intellectual pursuits, um, the same thing is true. Uh, another therapy that is showing some promise but is highly controversial is psychedelic therapy. And yeah. I'm not a practitioner and I've never been a, um, a student of it. So I have no experience. What I think is interesting is that the importance of having the right guide and having the right debrief after and not just to see the whole world through the lens of this framework in my book but to me that's like another example of order disorder reorder so there's some order somebody is struggling from ptsd or depression or anxiety and the brain is kind of stuck in that order and and it's stable but it's not a stability where anyone wants to be and the way that I've heard psychedelics spoken about is they kind of like blow that up. Yeah. They just, they, they break it open and there's tons of disorder that happens. Mm-hmm. The healing comes in the reorder and the pieces coming back together in a way that are different than before. And unless you have a really bad trip, 
you are still the same person that you were before, but you're also different. You're the same, but different. And to me, that is like, that is this cycle. So it comes up again and again and again. Yet back to where we started the conversation, we don't like, we don't talk about it because we see change as bad or something that happens to us instead of this conversation, which is like, no, change is, change is truly synonymous with life. Every wisdom tradition, impermanence, science, physics, thermodynamics, entropy, nothing stays the same. No. And I think if we shift the way that we approach change from seeing it as a one-off event to simply seeing it as a dance that we are always a part of, it gets a lot less scary and we empower ourselves to, to, to get in the dance. Yeah. 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 Completely. I could talk about this all day. All right. So we do ask returning guests rather than a yes and story, cause you've done that already uh, to share with us a thank you because story based on the research we've done uh, about trying to sort of speak through difference, uh, trying to like stay in that hard conversation. So I'm wondering if you have a thank you because story for us. I do. Um, I sometimes get emails from people who are angry. Um, and I don't do investigative, I don't do investigative reporting. No, you don't. I don't do gotcha things. Uh, but for whatever reason, sometimes things that I write really rub people the, the wrong way. And, um, I don't even know if this is the right course but unless an email is truly like vitriolic and hateful, mm-hmm. I will respond. I will take a deep breath and I will thank them for reaching out to me. And I will say, thank you for reaching out because I did not imagine that anyone would have perceived what I wrote to mean this, that, or the other. Mm-hmm. Or thank you for reaching out because it sounds like you're like having a really rough day and I'm just sorry that my work found you on this day and it triggered you in such a way. Or sometimes I'm not always right. Thank you because I was wrong. And like, I, I didn't think that this could really piss someone off, but now I see how it could. Yeah. And I wish I was enlightened and kind enough to say that the payoff of that is changing my mind. Uh-huh. It's not. The real payoff <laughs> of that is then to see the response. And Mm -hmm. to see how someone that was so angry and had such a tone of just like mad at me can respond, oh, I didn't think I'd get a response. I thought you were just like some famous author. Is this really Brad or is this one of your assistants? Or, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed I wrote that now. I didn't think you read any of these emails. Right. And the thank you because is that like people are better than their worst moment. Yes. And if you just give someone an opportunity to crawl out of their worst moment, they genuinely do. And it makes you feel like humanity could be better. And it's so different than social media where like you just spat something and then you block or you go away. And it's not to say the email is the same as having an actual conversation. But when I reply to those pissed off emails in nine out of 10 times, the reply comes back and there's some common ground or humanity. That is a, that, that is like a very hopeful moment for me. So now I no longer get despairing when those negative emails come in. It's like a thank you because moment mm-hmm. uh, because it helps me realize that most people are better than their worst moment. Yeah, I, I love that because it's, it's, it's in, in providing some grace for someone, you are also providing some grace for yourself. And, and, and you, know, you, you, put out, you put out into the world and, and you sort of see, see, see what comes back. And yes, I mean, a lot of, a lot, look, we, you know, many of us have done the sort of like 
the tweet that we shouldn't have done, you know, late at night or whatever. I'm much better about stopping myself uh, uh, than I, than I used to be on that. It's funny when when you started talking, I actually thought you were going to mention something else from the book that I do want to quickly explore, and it was when you a, a guy reached out to you who read your last book um, and started to have this conversation, and you got to know them, and this is a fairly unusual character. Yes. Um, yeah, that's right. Someone uh, had read my my prior book, The Practice of Groundedness, and reached out and essentially just said, like, the book really impacted them. And then they reached out again and said, I was really going through some when I read the book. And I just said, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm really happy to find you at the right moment. And I could kind of get, get the sense, like, this person wanted to share more, but was also apprehensive about it. So I just said, well, you know, everyone goes through some, but... Um, if if you want to share, I'm not your therapist, I'm just an author, but like, you know, feel free. And essentially he's like, well, you know, it's a major change in my life. And at this point I, I'm working on this idea and I'm like, oh, interesting. Like I'm, I'm really curious. Now I like my reporter hat goes on is I want to collect all kinds of stories of, of big changes. Yeah. Uh, so I reach out to this person and he's very hesitant, hesitant, hesitant. I have a pretty Jewish last name. My last name is Stahlberg. And eventually he tells me that his big change was he was the leader of the neo-Nazis and he is no longer the leader of the East coast neo-Nazis. And, um, we got into a really long, hard, intimate conversation, uh, that just ended with me having nothing but respect for someone. I mean, you see people in our current political polarization that essentially get into a, a cult and cannot see their way out. Well, this is an actual cult. Yes. And for him to be able to see his way out, um, now speak up against this cult, but also empathize with why people fall into it, not agree, but he can empathize because he literally was that young kid. See all the hurt and trauma and anger that put him in the neo-Nazis. Um, and then, and then be able to make that change. But with that change, experience so much guilt and shame and the kind of depression, which is you're worthless because you were doing this for 15 years of your life. Right. Um, yeah. So he becomes a central character in one of the chapters of the book because that is just a, it's a massive identity change. Uh, and you leave behind a worldview, a philosophy, a community and hate, which is often just a way to numb pain. And when you leave behind that hate, you have to face the pain. And um, his name's Jay. He's in the book. Uh, he's done all of this. Uh, and he is an out there dude. Like you kind of have to be to be a leader of any big organization, especially that one. Um, but just a profound example of someone that went through a massive disorder event and the reorder is a lot better for him and for the world than the prior order. And the, he had this thank you because moment right in a bar yeah, he's a bar with, uh, he's, he's wearing all of his regalia and so on and so forth. And he's in a bar and, um, a black man goes up to him and just starts talking to him. And Jay tells me, he's like, I don't know why this guy's talking to me. I'm in like my KKK regalia. And the person that was talking to him just was curious and they had a conversation and the regalia didn't come up at all. And then at the end of the conversation, after they've been talking for an hour, the black man said to him, Jay, you're better than this. You're better than what you're wearing. Mm -hmm. And he said he went home and that was 
what threw him into disorder. Yeah. And again, in this case, a very productive, positive disorder. And I think this is layered because like, is it that black man's responsibility to strike up a conversation for an hour? Absolutely not. And yet the amount of change that that man did to make the world a better place by having that hour conversation is more than most of us will do in a lifetime. That's right. The book is called Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. Brad Stahlberg, thank you for coming on the show. Ellie, thanks again for having me. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive